Hello, I'm Linda. And I'm Michael. We are so glad you can join us for our grand tour of Italy, retracing the footsteps of travellers who journeyed from the United Kingdom and Ireland between the 17th century to the early 19th century, all the way to Italy. Beginning in the late 16th century, it became fashionable for young aristocrats to visit Paris, Venice, Florence, and above all, Rome, as the culmination of their classical education. Some indeed carried on as far as Greece. Thus was born the idea of the Grand Tour, a practice that introduced Englishmen, Germans, Scandinavians, and also later on Americans to the art and culture of France and Italy for the next 300 years. Travel was arduous and costly throughout the period, possible really only for a privileged class, the same that produced gentlemen scientists, authors, antiquarians and patrons of the arts. Yes, so the essential place to visit, however, was Italy. And we have many journals and diary accounts for some of these travellers who, for example, that of Charles Thompson in 1744, he described himself as being impatiently desirous of viewing a country so famous in history, which once gave laws to the world, which is at present the greatest in terms of a school of music and painting, contains the noblest productions of statuary and architecture and abounds with cabinets of rarity and collections of all kinds of antiquities. The journey was very different from the types of trips we make today. If you just think about it, we can book an online flight within a few moments, choosing the date and the airports that we want to use. Think only a few years ago, we had to go through travel agents and how tedious long that was waiting on the phone in a queue. As somebody said on a recorded voice, your call is important to us. So today we can bring hand luggage or a suitcase. Um, There's also the attraction of the duty-free. And the whole enterprise is, I suppose, by comparison to at least the 17th and 18th century, we could say it's pretty painless. Yes, of course. And indeed, whoever invented those wheelie bags has completely transformed uh, the way we can move. So it is pretty quick and a lot quicker than the type of journeys that these travellers undertook a few centuries ago. Well, there still was a lot of preparation needed once somebody made up their mind or perhaps their papa or mama decided this was a good idea for little John to go to the continent to get the air and maybe to get out of their hair. I suppose the most important thing then was to decide how long little John had to be away. Uh, Some went for a few months, we know, a few weeks was hardly worth it because it was such a difficult job to get onto the continent and then trundle along either on horseback or in a coach. And some stayed for a few years So they had a variety of different routes to take. So particularly, let's have a think, what might have been a good itinerary or a good pathway? There were a few, there were certainly many, but most, uh, the most direct way was to depart from southern England. In many respects, some Irish visitors would cross the Irish Sea, as in our kind of land bridge, to Wales, make their way to the southern ports of Southampton or Dover and cross into France. And Michael, what sort of things do you think did they bring? Well, they didn't really have, I suppose, a 10 kilo carry-on bag. And the prices were, um, they must have been quite expensive as well, because travel was not something that you did cheap. Today, you know, for a few euro you can get, or pounds or dollars, you can get from one place to the other in a few hours. 
Yes, and indeed, so therefore the preparation was essential. They needed to plan everything uh, and clothing, what you were going to bring with you in terms of various changes, how much could you actually cram into a trunk. Um, You would need your undergarments, of course, shoes, certainly boots, hats, indeed one or two overcoats and of course the essential peruque or the wig. And as we know later, these wig wearers or wig bearers would later become known as macaroni by the Italians. Uh, a macaroni as in the pasta. As in that shape, that wonderful swirling, curling, you know, the little tail ends of, of the peruca of the wig. I see. Ah, So, well, the majority of the men, of course, at that time were, the, the travellers were men, so women were certainly uh, the minority. And I guess the reason for that probably was the fact that these were young men in their, we'll say, late teens, early 20s. They weren't married. So this was the opportunity to get them off, sow their wild oats, get their education uh, abroad and to make all their mistakes. And isn't the great expression, um, what you do abroad stays abroad. Uh, so I suppose the idea was something like that. And they generally traveled in the care of a chaperone who was a tutor, We tutor, sometimes we call them the bear, and they undertook on behalf of the parents and guardians to look after these young men. But you were talking about the curled wigs, and these were called periwigs. They were made from horse, goat, or occasionally human hair, and they were made to cover hair abnormalities and were generally made of two types. The first wig could be of black or brown hair, which would be maybe equivalent to what the young man would have and the second was grey or white but they were absolutely enormous and no I, I, I think very few people would have had an abundance of hair to make up these the equivalent of these wigs so originally we know that they were age related obviously but as time went by it became fashionable for the young men to wear grey or white wigs especially in the evening and so there was a whole etiquette designed and developed around that area. So they were, I guess they were designed to make the young man look intelligent and wise, wiser perhaps beyond his years. Hugh Douglas Hamilton, the pastel painter's father, was a wig maker in Dublin, we know. And indeed, there was all sorts of other alternative costumes for wearing at these very grand candlelit balls and various parties, uh, or indeed just card playing. And indeed, the, the, the certainly the preserve of men at the time was different kinds of makeup. And it is also known that some had, yeah, they had badly marked countenances. So in that candlelight, they often wore or used uh, different kinds of makeup to cover up those differences in in so to make them look enhance their their over uh, their their view in any case off they went crossing the English Channel and heading southwards some liked to stop in Paris uh, where they made their final preparations um, money was important so what did they do for for a currency and how did they keep their currency safe 
Well, gold and silver coins were not only heavy to transport, but they were dangerous because obviously they would attract the attention of robbers and thieves and brigands and all sorts of rogues who were everywhere. And we've several accounts indeed of horsemen holding up stage coaches and robbing the passengers at the knife of a dagger, at the knife point of a dagger. Florence was where the florin was the currency, so it must have been quite daunting to work out how to transport your money, your jewels, your valuables, etc. And that, of course, is why they usually carried a promissory note. And these were the forerunners of the banknotes. And they were a little easier to conceal. And they also had to be double-checked, like bringing a passport or identification document to the bank. And in a sense, I suppose it was a little bit like the old uh, traveller's checks, if we remember going back a few years. And that will really show how old we are. And of course, then again, this was a period of extraordinary expansion in the banking industry and vast fortunes were made, particularly at the time when the British Empire was expanding across the globe, as was the French Empire. This was the period of the wars between America and Canada. and So there was an amount of turbulence. But then after the preparations in Paris or let's say Berlin or whatever city they left from, And, you know, we've got to keep in mind that not everybody left from the United Kingdom. There were French and German travellers also. And you've only to look at the amount of Dutch painters who made the trip to Italy just to see how important the whole enterprise of spending time in the land of of, of ancient classical Rome and the Renaissance was. In the past, let's say prior to the 17th century, the main travellers on the road were, of course, Christian pilgrims to Rome. The change to young these young aristocrats was part in due to, yeah, these different upsets caused by the long wars in Central Europe in the mid-17th century, the 30s, 30 Years' War and so on. And also a breakup of Christendom caused by the Reformation in the first half of the 16th century. So the majority of the men on the road were Anglican. This marks the break from Catholic Christian pilgrims to more sophisticated men, perhaps using university educations and who had a different view from the accepted world vision of the time. There was also of note, for example, an Anglican bishop, Joseph Hall. He berated young men who set off on the journey to Rome, asking if they, what they expected to see in Rome would be of any value. So, but Michael, um, the young men, did, do you think how much did of the journey had a bearing on what they were learning or was it cultural exchange or were they just out for a good time? Well, I'm just thinking, for example, it's a bit like the Erasmus students of today or the study abroad programmes. Um, I kind of think that the young men didn't really care too much about that or that they were all that interested in culture. Um, obviously, today's students would be much more diligent, but they were mostly out for a good time. And that's something that most young people have. They've lots of enthusiasm and energy. I think, though, isn't it also the case that they part of the return from Italy was about the various souvenirs and about the works of art that were could be collected and were collected so that, uh, you know, once they were installed in their homes and houses, their libraries, their long galleries, their halls, uh, the sculpture, the works of art, the, you know, the, the, the books of, of works of architecture would, could be admired by those who didn't actually have the opportunity to travel. That's true. And if you go to some of the great stately homes, both in 
Britain and in Ireland and indeed across the north of Europe, you will find these very fine libraries, as you say, and the wonderful portraits. And curiously, many of the portraits were pre-painted so that when you went into the studio, all you had to do was get your face painted onto the portrait and that kind of filled in. And these were shipped home to Mama, Mama and Papa, who would be so thrilled to see their little son uh, advance in wisdom, stature and grace. I know one of the fond names of the Pompeo Batoni paintings was Geoffrey Page Turner. So he, he certainly had a look about him. Um, so in, in many respects, just thinking of this journey of cross, across from Lyon over through the Savoie region and the, the, the sort of most accessible route was Man, through Manchenis um, and most early travellers had a cart drawn by horses. But this was usually, uh, you know, there was a, pr- a cloth canopy to protect them from the elements. But from the 16th into the 17th century, these became more sophisticated uh, into the kind of carriage that we often refer to as the diligence. And by the yeah end of the 16th century, there were more developments in terms of design. There were lever- leather strung chassis and even a brake. Um, these were simple developments which made improvements to what was often referred to as quite a tiresome and arduous journey. By the 18th century, the best uh, type of carriage was the carolès, and that was where you had two persons inside and two trunks uh, well-fastened behind, also well-seasoned and well-corded springs with what was essential, the iron axles. And within that, the most important person, it seems, was the vetturino. Uh, he was the co- the carrier. Uh, he uh, he sorry. He was more the carriage keeper, and he looked after the horses. And I think the cambiatura was where you changed horses. So your posts were from say Turin to Pisa, and indeed it was well known that the road to Tuscany is really well appointed. And I think one of the references was the cost. It was about 25 shillings to go from Pisa to Florence, which was about 50 miles. So that gives us some idea of quantifying, you know, the overall costs of this. And Michael, did you want to tell us a little more about Caroline Lady Holland? Well, she was a contemporary in the 18th century and she described how the air was sweet and temperate when they came down from the Alpine ascent at Mancenis and she described the houses with projecting roofs, the mulberry trees and the vines and figs as soon as they arrived out on the Lombardy plain. And Catherine Wilmont, another contemporary, was enchanted by the hair, the air of the Piedmont and the the uh, styles that the women wore. And in particular, she noticed about the change from uh, holding it back, um, brushing it back, which was something that obviously they didn't do at the time. So one of the things we'd notice is that at this stage, people generally had to wait until the winter was over in order to get to the Alps, because the Alps was the big natural barrier. And no matter what passports you had, you just could not get over because first of all, there was frost and ice on the ground, if not snow which made it almost impossible to pass and one of the great passes was the St Bernard Pass and of course at that stage uh, it was almost impossible to get over with anything bar a, a horse or a mule. It was virtually impossible to climb those mountains so very often you were carried up on a little sedan chair 
and a palaquin. It was kind of a covered canopy chair. And then you paid somebody to lift you over the difficult part of the rocks. But again, must have been so uncomfortable. And if ever you're on a flight and there's a little turbulence and the, the captain puts on the uh, please fasten your, your safety belt again, you know, by comparison to what these people were going through, it was something very different. But I think at this stage, having come to the Alps, we better stop our journey because otherwise we'll keep going because we've got to arrive in the city of Turin for our next episode. Yes, so um, that's that's all from us today. And to say you would like you to get ready for the adventures of visiting the greatest of the diplomatic cities uh, in Italy, that of Turin and the court, the Sabadian court. Uh, once you, uh, as Michael has said, ascend, oh, climbed over the Alps and headed down in, uh, it really was the destination and the first major stop for many as they arrived in Italy. Ciao. Arrivederci.